0: Praise is due to you, O God of Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come when iniquities prevail against me. You atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you chose. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people's so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. For water, sorry, you water its furrows abundantly. Settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Thank you, Daryl.
1: I'd like to preface our prayer with the first four verses of that chapter that we just read. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, To you all flesh shall come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. To dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of of your temple. Let's turn in prayer. Lord, we pray that you do forgive us for looking to the things of this world to satisfy our souls when they are but a passing shadow and a fleeting moment that do nothing to satisfy us. But can I, but continue that longing in our heart that can never be filled except by you. But you invite us, you invite us to turn from our sin that prevails over us to draw near to you, to draw near to your courts with its sweet presence not only for forgiveness, but that you run to us with open and redemptive arms, and you embrace us and provide us with all the good things that heaven offers. Lord, the riches, the glory, the peace, and the stillness of our soul in the midst of strife and hardship that many of us are going through. Father, that many around the world are going through. Father, that you offer you yourself, the living bread, the living water when we are experiencing physical want and need. And Lord, the wondrous victory over the passions of the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit that has been entrusted to us until the day we see you face to face. And you've given us each other, what a beautiful gift, the beauty of the church. To come alongside and to encourage, to uplift each other in prayer, to rejoice in times of joy, to weep in times of sorrow. And Father, to, um, as a body, to come to you, to humble ourselves before you. Father, to be blessed by you. And Father, we uh, just thank you for this opportunity again. This Sunday morning to come together as a body of believers here at Edenville Baptist Church. But, Father, we uplift the other bodies around the town, in our town, in our state, in our country, around the world. Father, all unified by one Lord, one Savior, one Christ, and that is our Lord, Jesus. And, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. And we thank you for this uh, chance to reflect specifically on the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, in his name and for his glory do we come. Amen.
2: Thank you, Jason. Our catechism question for today is, what is the church? I'd like to say this answer together. God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected to eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. Our short answer, let's say this together as well. A community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. Our scripture I'll read from 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth.
3: True, brother. Well, I want I want to start out just by telling you some of the things that, um, as we celebrate Pentecost, Dan and I were talking about. This whole series is Dan's idea and his desire was that we spend a prolonged amount of time talking about the body of Christ, the church, and that we try to understand it um, in ways that maybe we've forgotten or ways we need at least to be reminded of. And as he and I were talking about it, he came up with some ideas about what we could do. Um, We celebrate tenebrae, right? And tenebrae we do in darkness because darkness is the predominant theme. Christ dies. And then we have um, Palm Sunday, and we have palms and robes, and we have shoutings from the crowd to help us to remember all that happened during that triumphal entry. And then on Easter, we repeat the phrase, he is risen. He is risen a little bit of a delay, but not bad. Well, we tried to think of what we could do to make Pentecost memorable, to remind us of things. Dan's first idea was a we could let loose a flock of doves in the sanctuary. And I thought, eh, that would be a little bit too messy, probably. And besides that, my wife would freak out. She's been attacked by birds before, so that just wouldn't be good. But then Dan had another idea. He thought we could take a giant net and hang it on the ceiling in here, and we could fill it with tongues of fire, and we could put a couple of big fans in the back, and at just the right moment, we could lower the net, and the tongues would fall on everybody's head, and the wind would blow on it. And I thought he had lost his mind. But then I had an idea. And, um, Tina, if you will show that slide, I thought we could give everybody one of these to wear. (laughs) I was certain Teresa could whip up a whole bunch of those pretty quick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what you said. You said you thought I had had another stroke. Some fun ways to think about this, but we realized Pentecost really can't be repeated. And if we tried any of those things, it really is more irreverent than reverent. And that is not what we wanted to put forth today. We want to honor the gift that God has given us in the Holy Spirit's descent upon us and in the birth of the church. It was a marvelous day. So, before I start, let's pray. Father, I personally need clarity in my thinking and in my thoughts. I know you have given words to be spoken. Let me not, with my fumbling nature, mess it up. May your word go forth to every person in this building today. And may that truth permeate throughout your church, throughout the world. The truth that the Spirit of Christ has descended upon us and that the gospel message is true in the resurrection of Christ and that we repent and are restored to relationship with you. Let those be our thoughts today as we focus upon your word. Amen. You know I love warm spring days, and we haven't had a whole lot of them, and the reason I love them is because I like to hike, and the Lord has given me um, just an amazing blessing. The last couple of weeks, Mary was out of town, and, and I had time alone, and I got to go on a couple of hikes, and as I was hiking, and that warm sun was just beating down on my balding head, and I was... At a brisk pace, my heart was pounding. My my soul also started to soar. And I found myself bursting into song of praise again and again. It was glorious. And I found myself just praying to my creator with gratitude in my heart to him at what he had created. It was a marvelous experience. And over the next several weeks, as we focus upon the church, I want to take you with me on several hikes. Now, we're not going to put on a backpack, and we're not going to go walk on a trail outside. But I want to take you on a stroll, then, through the stunningly majestic and beautiful vineyards and green pastures of God's marvelous plan for the church. It truly is breathtaking. It is a breathtaking grandeur as we can walk through and view those vistas from his word and see the fresh rain-drenched fields bursting with life that is his church. I want to direct your gaze upon the image of Christ stamped indelibly upon his crowning creation, which is his assembled people, the church. This beauty is unique. It is precious and it is holy. It is an exquisite splendor that staggers even our best attempts or even my best attempts to perceive it or to describe it. To do this, to really do this, we must climb high mountains, the high mountains of Christ's overwhelming knowledge and his revelation, and then we must peer down into or upon that expression, the church of his imagination. It springs from the imagination of the creator. That's what the church is. His. To see clearly, though, we must use the twin lenses of God's field glasses, if you will. We have to have God's spirit within us, and we have to have his word before us. Those are the twin lenses. Without those lenses, we see through dirty glasses. We see what the world sees. We see a church that at times appears to be nothing more than a stack of boulders or dead bodies. A bride soiled in garments, covered in dirt, or even a harlot. That's how the world sees us. But from the pinnacle of God's revelation and equipped with his spirit and his word, we will travel together from mountain peak to mountain peak, awestruck and joyful at what we see. It will stagger our imaginations as we focus in on this thing we call the church. I give you my personal solemn promise that I will do all that I can to help us to see how stunningly beautiful the church is when seen from Christ's perspective. Some of you may be asking, why travel this far and climb these mountains? Simply put, because both Dan and I are convinced The church needs a fresh look at the startling contrast between what God knows and sees as beautiful and what we think is beautiful. In the United States, at least, we need cataract surgery. At very least, we need a new set of glasses. We see often, as the world sees, through lenses that are dirtied by various idols. The most prominent of those idols today is the idol of self. It's all about me. But there are other idols. There's the idol of American politicalism. There is the idol of our tribalism. And our denominationalisms, we need to be freed from these. And we need to be freed from despondency. We are convinced that this can only come through the clear, clean lenses of God's Word. We need to take off the sunglasses we've been wearing, darkened by the world's social adulteries, satanic philosophies, endless chatter warped thinking, profit margin marketing, and personal kingdom building. And we need to see clearly through clean lenses. And by God's grace and mercy, the word of God, by the spirit of God, for the glory of God, we will do just this. So strap on your boots and grab your Bibles, the trails in front of us. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 16, 1 to 20. It's page 976 in your pew Bibles. As you're turning, I want to give you a little bit of a background for this passage before I read it to you. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. He and his disciples have left that area by boat and crossed over into the region of Magdala. There, once they get off the boat, they are almost immediately met by Pharisees and Sadducees who come with one purpose, and that is to test him. Let's read. And the set Pharisees and the Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the, the signs of the times an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Remember that. Except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they began discussing among themselves, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Do you not remember the 4,000 and how many baskets were met, Or Do you not remember the seven loaves For the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I'm not speaking about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elisha. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Simon Peter replied, You are are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let me pray again. Father, open our eyes that we might see wondrous things out of your laws in Christ. You know there are many metaphors in Scripture for the church. in the New Testament they are, they abound. And some of the examples, uh, the church is, has a metaphor of the vine, a field, a flock, a family, a building, a bride, a body, an olive tree, light, marriage. I could go on and on. There are many many metaphors. And metaphors are really wonderful teaching tools, as they allow us to see realities we easily miss, and characteristics we fail to recognize without them. Each metaphor provides us with pictures of the simple beauty and the gloriously complex splendor that is the church. But we only have eight weeks for this series. I know some of you are thinking, only eight weeks? That's hardly enough. Right. Well, honestly, it isn't hardly enough. In fact, it isn't enough. So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to concentrate on three of these metaphors. The first metaphor we're going to look at next week is the church as a building. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the church as a body. And finally, we'll look at the church as a bride. And I have two purposes in mind for this. First, we need to see what each of these metaphors used in Scripture reveals to us about the church. And then learn how what we see directs our steps. And we'll do that in the final three weeks. But before I can tackle the metaphors, we really must answer two critical questions morning and I'll do the best I can. The first one is what is the church and the second one is what isn't the church. I find looking at both the positive side what is and the negative side what isn't helps me to get a clearer understanding of what really is the church. So that's the tack we're going to take. Would you pull up um, what is the church? Our cat question, the brief answer. What is the church? A community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. Now, the longer answer is much more complicated. And I have to tell you, I don't have time this morning to unpack this definition like I'd like to. I'm going to concentrate on the two words that I have highlighted in red. First, I want to tell you why we start here in Matthew 16. Seems like an odd place to start, I suppose. But because The reason I wanted to start here is because I think there's truth in this passage that is critically important for us if we're really going to answer what is the church. Because there's some foundational things here in Matthew 16 for us that set the stage or help us to understand. And the first thing that we need to look at Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now the words I really want you to focus in on in this passage are, I, that's Christ speaking, will build my church. The church is not a secondary thought, nor is it something that man has planned or determined. It's not his big idea, it's God's big idea. So it's important for us to understand that. We really get confused sometimes. You hear it in our language, I'm going to church today. Really? The church is a building, not of brick and mortar, but of each of us. So I'm going to meet with the church this morning would be a better way to say it. But these little things reveal to us some misunderstandings, and some of it's cultural. We've just grown up that way. But honestly, I think in our heart of hearts, we begin to believe these things. There are two other important things we need to see from this discourse here in Matthew 16. First, Christ discloses there is a sign And secondly, there is a critical declaration. And by the way, just as an aside, this is totally trivia, but the word church or ecclesia is only mentioned twice in the Gospels. In all of the Gospels, the word only appears twice. Both of those times, it is spoken by Christ. And both of those times are here in Matthew. Once here in 16 and again in 18. Just a little bit of information. But let's deal with this sign first. Jesus refers to Jonah as a sign. Why? This puzzled me. Why? What's so important about a whining, disobedient, rebellious, self-focused, cursing, pouting messenger? How? Because that's who Jonah was. If you doubt me, go back and read the book this afternoon. But let's let scripture interpret this for us. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Okay? Matthew chapter 12. And beginning in verse 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Sound familiar? It's the message he repeats in 16. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And now Christ reveals why Jonah is a sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will a son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So why is Jonah a sign? Because his life and ministry points to Christ. That's what a sign does. A sign points to something beyond itself. Our sign out there points to the fact that there's a building back here called Eatonville Baptist Church. There are two parts to that sign, and these are important. The first, Jesus says, is because just like Jonah was in the fish for three days, So I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. Just three days. Not three and a half, not four. Just three. He is telling of his resurrection by using Jonah as a sign that points directly to him. And the second, and this is the fun one part of it for me, and that is the people of Nineveh. Why? Why... Do I think the people of Nineveh are part of this sign? Because the Ninevites are Gentiles. And the Gentiles, when they heard of God's judgment, did not ask Jonah for a sign. They repented. That's why the Ninevites are a sign. Jesus is declaring the gospel right there. He is declaring through this recorded messenger. the best word I can think of. I don't want to call him a prophet. He's kind of a loser, Jonah is. But it gives me hope. If God could use Jonah, well, then he might just be able to use me. But God uses Jonah to point to Christ. The question I have for us this morning related to this sign is we've heard the message of God's judgment and the need for repentance for years. Are we still looking for a sign? Are you still looking for a sign? Know this. Christ has declared no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. I pray that God grants each of us repentance unto life. So we have the sign of Jonah. But then also in this passage in Matthew 16, we have where Christ refers to Peter as Simon bar Jonah. After he has made the declaration, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Christ says, you are Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, you, you know in the Aramaic or the Hebrew, the word Bar means son, right? It's as simple as that. It's not a complex word. Son. So you're the son of Jonah. Now, unless you really start to think about this a little bit, you think, big deal. So his dad's name's Jonah. No, it wasn't. In John 142, Jesus himself tells us that Peter's father's name was Jonah. I mean, John. John. His father's name was John, not Jonah. So what is it that Jesus is, is trying to get them to understand? Disclosing to them through this, calling Peter the son of Jonah. He's tying things together for us. You know, Jesus used this term, son of, he used it in John 17, 12. He said Jesus, Jesus used the term son of destruction. Now, he wasn't trying to say that destruction was somebody's father. It is a, what do you call it, a syllog, syllogism? Anyway, it's a way of expressing something to make a point. What he's saying here is that what Peter has declared is a sign, just like Jonah is a sign. The third sign or third thing that Christ is trying to get people to understand here is that the declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is the thing upon which he will build his church. And he makes it really clear because he says Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, but my Father in heaven. Do you remember who it was after the ascension of Christ who was the first to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles? It was Peter. You remember the scene? Peter's on the house, kind of resting. Big sheep comes down, it's got all kinds of animals in it. He's told to take up and eat. And he says, no, I'll never do that. The sheet goes up, and then it comes back down. Then it goes up, and then it comes back down. And the same thing happens three times. Take and eat. And then finally he's told, what I say is clean. You don't get to say is unclean. And so Jesus then sends him to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius. In Acts 10.34, after Peter is there, and he hears what they have to say, His immediate response is, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Amen. The sign of Jonah, the declaration of Peter, and Christ's statement that he will build his church. The church is God's doing, not man's. And it was thought of long before Pentecost. But let's pause for a moment and explore one other question. This is a question that Jesus was asking his disciples. Who do you who do you say? Who do you say? Who do you say I am? And Peter declares, but how do you answer that question? Honestly. Answer it honestly. In your heart. I can't see your heart. I don't think I'd want to even if I could. The reality is that is a question you must answer before God. How do you answer it? Is he the son of the living God? The Messiah? Or is he just Another prophet. Or is he like the rest of the world thinks? Um, Maybe he's delusional or demon-possessed. Or he's just a man. Well, loony, but just a man. Or do you answer like the apostles were saying other peoples were? Well, maybe, maybe he's John the Baptist. Or or maybe it's Jeremiah. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Or can you declare with certainty that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? I plead with you to think through that question. There can only be two answers. He is or he is not. If you cannot or have not made this declaration, then your only hope, your only hope is to plead with the Father, to cry out to him that he revealed to you who Christ is. Because our calling comes from him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. People, the first gift is faith. If you want faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then fall on your knees before the Father and ask him to reveal that truth to you. May Christ reveal it to all of us. Well, now we've seen that the church is God's big idea. Founded on the rock of his resurrection and declared to be true by Christ himself. I want to then look again at the answer to our catechism question. The commu- a community elected for eternal life and united by faith, who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. I'm just going to unpack two, two words, as I told you before. The first is the word elected. Now, in our world, especially in the United States, elected means by majority vote or by stealing or who knows how you want to define it but elected here means chosen by God to be an assembly of his people it's not a vote but by the call of God that is in fact exactly what that word in the greek means ekklesia a called out assembly Romans 8.30, and those he predestined, he also called. 1 Corinthians 1.2, the church of God, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And secondly, the church is united. It doesn't feel that way often, but it is. Israel was the prototype of the church, right? The plan revealed in the prototype was that one people would bless all people and thus glorify God. Israel has an ancestral line, Abraham to Christ, and it ends in Christ. But Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. You can argue with me that later. Israel is one people, one people, with one language, with one culture, with one ancestry. The church, on the other hand, God's ultimate plan, Revealed through Christ, takes many people, many people, and makes them one. Instead of one making blessing on many, he takes many and makes them one. thus glorifying God. It's just like God to turn upside down our thinking in order to reveal his own. Many people. We have an ancestral line. It begins with Christ, and it ends with Christ. Colossians three eleven, Romans one fourteen, and many others tell us exactly what kinds of people make up this particular assembled, called out group. They are Greeks and Jews, barbarians and Scythians. That just simply means the cultured folks. They are circumcised, and they are uncircumcised. They are slaves, and they are free. They are wise, and they are foolish. They are sinful, all of them. Revelation 5-9, a ransomed people for God, get this, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you find any room for racism there? I don't. And then the mysterious, the mystery of Christ hidden for ages, Ephesians 3.6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we see the church is a community of called out people, elected, and united for the glory of God. Now, what is the church not? Well, there is one question that's asked. I I think I counted like 38 or 48. I don't remember the exact number of times. Uh, One question that's asked in the New Testament over and over and over again It's this. Do you not know? Christ himself used that a lot. It's a question that assumes you should know, but somehow you don't. Do you not know, is the way the question reads. And I want us to look at some of those do you not know questions in the New Testament in order to discern what the church is not. The first comes from 1 Corinthians 9.24. This is written to the church in Corinth. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. The point I'm trying to make here is that you see that the church is not a stroll in the park. It is a race to the finish. A race takes training and effort, sweat, time. The church is not a stroll in the park. And sometimes I think we want it to be. Number two, James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Romans 6.16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the point I want you to see here is that the church is not a friendship with the world. It is a coming out of the world and yet staying in the world. Maybe it's better to say, it is the world coming out of us and we remaining in the world. Number three, I pulled a commentary off of Dan's shelf in his study, and one of the scholars wrote, uh, there is not a single instance, not a single instance in the New Testament where the church is ever referred to as a single individual. There is not a single reference in the New Testament well, where the church can be considered a single person. Do you not know? 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. Race, priesthood, nation, and people have nothing to do with an individual. What I want you to see, and the question, do you not know, do you not know that the church is not a solo act? Or a one-person army? If you're thinking you can get along without the race, nation, priesthood, and people that are God's, you are sorely mistaken. And you are going to end up in real trouble. The church is not optional. This is not a solo act. This is not a hike on a trail by ourselves into woods we're not familiar with. This is an army marching to battle. It's time for us to march. The fourth thing and the last thing in this section, don't get your hopes up, um, is that the church is not a platform For political agendas. I'm going to repeat that. The church is not a platform for political agendas. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Do you not know the church is more like an altar than it is a platform? An altar upon which each of us must sacrifice every visage of self in service of Christ. Every one of them. Because service to anything other than Christ is adultery and idolatry. All of our opinions, our desires, our wishes, our demands, our very thoughts, Our worldviews, our preferences, and our agendas, all must be torn down. All must be torn down and rejected for what they are, idols. And we must then place them upon the altar of God's church and let them burn. Because by only God, only by God, can we know the worth of our worship and devotion to him. These other things come in like a cloud and make it impossible for us to see the truth. The word of God alone reveals truth. Christ is the son of the living God. Now I'm going to support what I just said with a couple of scripture verses. 1 Corinthians 10 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Sound familiar? Love your neighbor. Philippians 2 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own ter- interest but also to the interests of others. And here's the important part have this a mind among, have this mind among yourselves to the point of death, even death on the cross. If Christ, being God, so humbled himself, how dare we hang on to our petty idols? Well, we've looked just briefly at what the church is and what it isn't, and now I have a final question for you. Who are we? Who are we? You say, the church. Yes, I agree. We are the assembled. But here's some specifics. Paul Tripp in his book, Do You Believe? Which is the book the men are going through in the call to lead Bible study. Self-glory, I'm quoting him, self-glory will turn you into a church consumer instead of a committed participant in its work. Let me repeat. Self-glory will turn you into a church consumer instead of a committed participant in its work. Are we consumers? Or are we committed participants in the work of Christ through his church? Are we a come-as-you-are, leave-when-you-like sort of church? Do we come wanting a free lunch or maybe a free ride? Or are we maybe looking for a way to buy our way into the kingdom of God? Or are we indeed committed to participation in the work set before us by Christ? This church is not our idea. The work it's been given is not our idea. The church is God's assembled people, and the work is the work that he has given us to do. It's his whole body. Do you not know? The church is not built with human plans and human hands or efforts. Christ said he'll build it. But each of us has a role in that building. Do you not know that the church is a whole body? A whole body? But it's not born from human desire, nor is it made up of sewn together, um, amputated limbs like a Frankenstein. The church is a new creation of many parts. And all of those parts must be nourished and strengthened. That's the work of the church. Do you not know? That the church is the betrothed bride of Christ. But she's not yet ready for the kingdom. She's not ready for the bridegroom. There is much work that has to be done. The wedding party isn't even ready. There is much work to be done. Yeah, we know that our election is sure. And we know that our unity is real even when it doesn't feel like it because it's Christ's blood that bought these things and made them real. But we must all also use this knowledge that we have to join together to fight the enemy of God rather than each other. Let us use the keys that have been given to us. The sign of Jonah and the declaration of Peter. And let us use those keys to unlock those gates of Hades or death. Let's loose the dying behind bars without Christ from their imprisonment. Let us, as the old song says, rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, risen from the dead. We must declare that. May Christ show us grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, take this. as my offering before you today. Flawed and fumbling at times, yet given with a heart that wants desperately to glorify you. Take these words, Lord God, and burn them into our hearts. Let us hear the declaration that you are the risen Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And the message is for all people. Let us, Lord God, with fire within us, your spirit burning within us, and your word before us, declare these truths to the world as you empower us. In the name of Christ, amen.